0: Uh, welcome, everyone, and welcome to the Institute for Government for uh, this wonderful session with Andy MacDonald, uh, who is here to talk us about Labour's policy for the Department of Transport. Uh, very pleased to have you here today. You've been shadowing this post for quite a while mm-hmm. in, since June 2016, and before that, uh, you were Shadow Transport Minister. Oh. So, very familiar with the brief. We are looking forward to uh, hearing your remarks. Um, Andy will give uh, a speech on uh, setting out his policies and so forth, and then we'll move to questions uh, from all of you. And we've got an hour for all of this. So, without further ado, <coughs> thank pass you very the floor much. to you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, how are we? Is that, is that, that good? Yep. Yeah, um, yeah. Many thanks, Kath, for asking me to to speak today, uh, and uh, thanks to all these distinguished guests uh, from politics, from business, academia, from media, many other fields for taking the time to be here today. So I thought I'd give you, spend the next 90 minutes giving you dissection of Brexit. Um, <laughs> no, not many takers, then, I take it, yeah. Um, no, but so let's talk about transport. I want to thank the Institute, its fellows, and members for the important work you do in our public life and the need for proper analysis and discussion of the job of government has never been greater. I'm also pleased to be here this morning for this reason. This year marks a century uh, since the Ministry of Transport was set up in 1919 at the end of the First World War under the government of Lloyd George. uh, Supported by Winston Churchill, the Liberal Prime Minister wanted to nationalize the railways and bring them into the ministry. Uh, yet they were thwarted by the motoring lobby who worried that the railway interest would dominate. And of course, there are echoes now, just discourse today, a century later. So, the formal establishment of the Ministry of Transport within the UK's system of government came much later than many of the other great offices of state. Surprising, you might think, that it took so long to bring all the modes of transport into a standalone ministry. Transport had been around for a while before 1919 but perhaps that is precisely the point. Uh, The lowly birth of the Ministry of Transport says something about the priority it was given and perhaps has had within government in the subsequent decades. Perhaps something of an afterthought. Indeed transport was absorbed in and then back out again of the departments of the environment at various times under both Labour and Conservative governments. And the churn uh, rate of transport ministers is higher than any other areas of Whitehall uh, and the job's been regarded as a perch on the way up or on the way down of the ministerial ladder. I heard Chris Patton speaking a few months ago and he he was reflecting on times past and saying that the particular individual, uh, he, uh, he was a fairly minor figure, you know, uh, transport secretary is about the height of that person's abilities and not really a serious person. Uh, well, hopefully that perception is changing and I'd like to accelerate the change. I would say also, I'm quite, quite um, uh, not fun, but I admire what Chris Patton says. And he said a few uh, years ago about the, the modern political disc- discourse that um, everybody was sort of, hooked on sound bites and um, short interventions. He said, the trouble is that nobody's prepared to read to the end of the paragraph. And I thought that was a really good good, uh, observation by him. But as we approach the third decade of the 21st century, there is a renewed sense of purpose about the role and value of transport in the economic and social life of this country. And I intend to look at why this is so in my remarks to you today and how these changes uh, uh, will reflect Labour's priorities for the department. But first, I w- I'd like to consider the legacy of the last Labour government's transport policy. There are many positives and m- much to be proud of. We didn't blink in the face of the calamity, which was the collapse of rail track in the autumn of 2001. The decisions Labour took then saved the railway from total system collapse. We agreed the settlement for rail investment and long-term finance, which, despite what my opponents say, laid the foundations of future growth to this day. We sowed the seeds of crossrail, devolved transport, company car tax reforms and the advent of congestion charging. Perhaps our biggest mistake on transport um, was not responding properly uh, in uh, response to the fuel protesters in the year 2000. New Labour was at the height of its powers with a Conservative party in disarray and we should have seen this through. Uh, The failure to do so led to a huge distortion in both the public finances and how the financial burden has fallen across the modes of transport, which we still live with today. And you may know that the Labour Party is currently uh, engaged in a detailed process of preparing for government. And I very much agree with the view expressed at an IOT event last month by my colleague, Shadow Cabinet, in the Shadow Cabinet, Emily Thornberry. She said that the opposition should set out in public, in as much detail as possible, the policies we plan to introduce and the principles we intend to apply once in government. The reason for this is so that, as well as preparing ourselves for government, the civil service then has the best possible chance to prepare for us. It's fair to say that the DFT has faced significant challenges since 2010, but in my view, a lack of vision and appropriate political direction have led to a loss of sight of what sort of society we want our transport system to help create and serve. Labour's primary objective for the department is for it to create an affordable accessible and sustainable system for the many not the few founded on the principle that transport is an essential public service. Other priorities include establishing much closer links between transport and planning, cutting emissions and improving public health through a shift to public transport and active travel, and rebalancing our economy and reducing inequality through working alongside devolved authorities to invest in transport. And I'll return to these and other objectives a little later. I've mentioned Brexit but of course it's been a huge challenge for the Department with hundreds of officials being allocated to no-deal planning. And I'm aware that additional demands have been made of staff and their duties extended because of Brexit into areas that they could never have expected. Whether that extends, as is rumoured, to being on call to distribute blankets and sandwiches at ports or on motorways in the event of an Deal, is another matter altogether. But civil servants didn't sign up for this. I really don't think that the route that the government has taken with the Brexit negotiations has made the best use of the talent and experience of the civil service. And it might come as a surprise to some in the audience, uh, but I have been quite critical of the current transport secretary. (laughs) Um, Perhaps for today I'll just simply say that my criticisms are not without foundation. Uh, But under my leadership, my firm resolve would be to provide the vision and leadership that I think is essential from a transport secretary. And in particular, when I look at the work of the the department, I very much regret the dominance of short-term thinking over long-term strategies. Transport provision needs long-term goals and vision. Consider the railway. Electrifying railways is vital to decarbonising rail, are meeting Britain's climate change objectives. The government decided to halt electrification to save a few hundred million pounds. This hugely short-sighted decision has led to a vast amount of added expenditure on dual-use electric diesel trains that can run on different sorts of power, but which are slower, heavier, dirtier, less reliable and more damaging to the tracks. What's more, the stop-start approach to electrification rather than the sensible, the steady rolling programme has vastly increased the costs. It's also undermined business investment and led to labour instability. I've spoken elsewhere about how labour would extend and improve the present financial planning control periods for the railway. We established this medium-term process in government, but I believe we now need to go much further. That's why we will set out a 30 to 40 year long-term vision for the railway enshrining the program for operations, maintenance, and enhancements. And turning to the staff, I I want them to feel good about what they do. Many civil servants and officials working in the department and its agencies approach their work as more of a vocation than a job. They see themselves as public servants providing an essential public service that is key to the quality of people's lives and is vital to the country's economic prosperity. But those working in transport at Greatminster House have found themselves all too often serving the business interests of private rail and private bus companies. Moreover, it's they who have had to pick up the pieces and the blame when the railway in particular continuously shows itself to be dysfunctional and wasteful. Civil servants in Marsham Street writing timetables. That's been a familiar industry critique of the department for years and it reflects the absurd, unsustainable and ever-growing level of involvement of officials in the rail industry. This over-specification and man-marking of the industry by the department needs to end. It's a waste of resources and energy, and I suspect there is a widespread consensus about that. The Institute for Government's latest Whitehall review shows that the DFT is losing one in five key staff every year. The report also highlights an employment culture across the civil service, which encourages staff to shift rapidly from one government department to another. And in my view, such a culture is not conducive to supporting the development and securing of specialist departmental expertise. We've seen multi-billion pound public procurement contracts from the East Coast Rail franchise, and intercity express program, new train, uh, fleet procurement, go very badly, as well as smaller procurement, such as cross-channel ferry contracts. And I can't help but ponder whether these cultural deficits may have been at play in these instances. There's a perfect storm where, in the case of rail, officials are being more and more drawn into the inner workings of the rail industry, while simultaneously losing the skills and expertise within the department to manage these onerous responsibilities. Surely what is needed is a career path and progression system which better rewards specialist skills and policy knowledge. So the next Labour government will work to achieve this as well as putting the principle and culture of public service back at the heart of transport provision and governance. I'll now move on to outline some of the other principles that will define and in fact uh, redefine the priorities of the Department for Transport's work under a Labour government. The utmost priority will be given to meeting our climate change objectives. Last year, the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned that the world has 12 years for for global warming to be kept to a maximum rise of 1.5 degrees. Transport is the UK's single largest source of greenhouse gas. Uh, and the worst-performing sector when it comes to reducing carbon emissions. What's more, recent years have seen a rising trend in emissions caused largely by increased traffic growth, encouraged by an ever-expanding programme of road-building. For too long, transport has been put in the too-difficult box, so far as climate change is concerned, and this will change under Labour. I say it's only too difficult if it's approached with unambitious or dare I say conservative priorities. Labour will align the priorities of the department with our commitment to tackle climate change. We'll put an end to paying lip service to looking after our planet and instead we'll ensure we put our moral responsibility to cut emissions at the department's core and we will allocate departmental spending as if climate change really matters. The department doesn't have a carbon reduction budget or target. Under my leadership, I will want to see the department set a carbon budget consistent with the aspirations of the Paris Climate uh, Change Accord. In addition, I will want each of the sectors, rail, road, aviation and maritime, to have carbon reduction targets in line with that departmental budget we will reallocate departmental spending to achieve those changes and we will reform the regulatory structure of transport to drive these behavioral changes. Stronger regulation will also help achieve better value for money and productivity from public transport investment. And under Labour there will be a new social contract for transport. Consider these points about where the burden falls on transport users. Fuel duty frozen since 2010 at a cost of more than £50 billion. Pounds. Air passenger duty in aviation broadly frozen over a similar period. Rail and bus fares up by more than a third. This is not a sensible approach to transport policy. So in, it's in this context that Labour has concluded that we need a new social contract for transport. And that social contract has completely collapsed under the Conservatives with soaring fares for bus and rail passengers, alongside huge cuts to investment in road maintenance, uh, railways and bus services. And I've asked uh, Professor Phil Goodwin, a well-recognised expert in this field, to lead a study on what a new social contract for transport should comprise. I want him to investigate the key elements of building a social contract for transport which will be fair to all transport users, all of the beneficiaries of transport, and to all taxpayers and the DFT will be at the heart of this social contract between public and government. I turn now to some key cross departmental issues starting with planning and development. There's a, a deep and damaging rift between land use planning and transport planning. Transport provision, particularly sustainable transport options, must be at the heart of these new developments. Land value capture must also be a key component of this. Labour is committed to a huge expansion in social housing. We want those developments to be centred around good public transport connections from the start as well as cycling and walking infrastructure. This raises a question about the alignment uh, between the DFT and housing which sits within the Department for Communities and Local Government and I think there's a case for closer integration. It's our ambition for new housing developments to be transit oriented, centred on excellent public transport hubs. There should also be mixed use developments with both houses and businesses close together so that there are local jobs. They should have high quality design that creates an attractive public realm with streets and public spaces that are good to walk, cycle and spend time in. With over half of the population already overweight or obese, and suffering increased ill health as a result. It's essential to focus on the major health gains uh, available from travel by walking and cycling. The next Labour government will put transport planning and spending behind Labour's public health ambitions and will bring active travel to the fore. We'll create uh, the built environment and infrastructure to enable people to safely decide to make their local trips by walking and cycling. We believe everyone should have the opportunity to live healthier lives. And the best way to achieve this is to create a safe environment where walking and cycling are the most pleasant and convenient means of travel for short trips. And I want to uh, maximise the role of the DFT in supporting Labour's plan to use transport to boost all regions of the UK. I was in Birmingham last week and it's quite clear that uh, transport's driving the economic transformation of that city, uh, particularly through the coming of HS2 in the middle of the next decade. There must be a major role for the DFT in rebalancing Britain's economy across rail, buses, surface access to ports and airports, as well as active travel and freight. We need a fairer allocation of transport investment across the UK's regions. And the DFT is also hugely important in supporting industrial strategy. Under Labour, the department will proactively support our industrial strategy and maximise provision of high-quality jobs in transport. And my colleague uh, John McDonnell has uh, said recently the next Labour government intends to drive a green industrial revolution. Transport, and the railway in particular, was at the heart of the industrial revolution and so these greenest forms of transport with the railway at the forefront are critical to our plans for a green industrial revolution. For example, we will instigate a rolling programme to progressively electrify the railway. A recent report from the Rail Industry Association showed that very substantial cost reductions to the electrification process can be achieved. And I commend their work which shows that moving from the present stop-start approach to electrification to a continuous programme that build skills, knowledge and capacity can reduce costs by nearly a half. We will increase the UK's skill capacity to support the fleets of the bus and road haulage industries as they move towards zero carbon. We should use procurement to boost skills and apprenticeships in green jobs. New technology and digitalization will drive further changes. So alongside uh, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, The DFT needs to sit at the apex of this to to build those green skills, the knowledge and capacity to improve transport and at the same time, reduce carbon. And let me say something about freight and logistics. The movement of goods has never been strategically planned in the UK. What's more, the logistics industry and supply chains have changed dramatically. Our motorways and smaller roads are at peak capacity. The road haulage industry faces recruitment and demographic challenges. That's why we need a much more integrated uh, freight strategy. So Labour will work with businesses across the UK to provide smarter ways of moving products and aggregates around the country. We need to develop key freight corridors across transport modes to improve trade links. We need to move away from the siloed approach to planning by mode of transport Labour's smart logistics strategy will realise the scale of our ambition. A balanced freight policy between road and rail can feed into urban consolidation centres, enabling the final mile to be undertaken on local clean tech transport. And we have to undo the damage of deregulated privatised transport. No other country in the world would dream of running its public transport services like we do. Our buses are a free for all, with private bus companies deciding where they will and where they won't be bus services. They prioritize what will best serve their shareholders with the needs of local people coming a poor second. Cities like Munich or Strasbourg take a strongly interventionist approach to to transport and own their own trams and buses. And these regions aren't hotbeds of radical socialism. There's a very good reason for this rational approach to transport policy because, quite simply, it delivers affordable and good public transport. Probably the most serious problem is that splitting up our public transport system into innumerable pieces has made it impossible to achieve an integrated system that provides a joined-up service for passengers the railway fails to be integrated even with itself let alone with buses and trams. so the next labour government will reform the culture of the dft so that it's committed to and equipped with the skills and the knowledge to undo the damage of deregulated privatized transport and put in place connected public transport networks that give people the freedom to travel without depending upon private cars. So let me say something about rebuilding the railway because the railway was decapitated and chopped into bits for privatization and as a result, it lacks any kind of guiding mind. I mentioned earlier that the DFT has been drawn into the railway more and more to try and compensate for the lack of transparent governance This should not be the role of the department. Labour will create a unified rail company that will provide a guiding mind for the entire railway. This will be more uh, at arm's length from government than the present privatised railway, and will draw strongly on devolution, since we believe that local expertise can best develop our rail service while securing national strategic oversight to secure the best connectivity possible. This unified rail company will include high-speed rail, which is so vital for the whole country, not just in terms of connectivity, but also new housing and jobs. High-speed rail won't just increase rail capacity. It will, it will improve surface access links to airports, unlock capacity for rail freight to and from ports, and free up space, our congested roads. We need a guiding mind to ensure that all enhancements are integrated into and mapped across our strategic plan. Labour will ensure that projects such as HS2 closely align with the much needed upgrades elsewhere on the network, such as Northern Powerhouse Rail. In terms of investment in high speed versus the existing network, I say it's not a question of either or, it is both. But having said that, there's gonna be no blank check from Labour. These steps will redefine the role of the Department for Transport in rail governance so that it's only concerned with strategic oversight, working in partnership with a unified, publicly-owned railway that has the professional freedoms to deliver the rail services travelers need and deserve. Labour's determination to make transport fully accessible to passengers is long overdue. And through emphasizing the service of public service, Passengers will be able to travel with confidence knowing that rail staff are there to assist at all times. These significant changes will involve uh, a significant reallocation of staff from the DFT rail group into the public rail company of course. And labour will reverse the neglect of bus services. There is a deep social and economic inequality in access to our transport system. Buses are by far the major mode of public transport, providing more than twice as many trips as rail. For many people, buses are the only form of public transport available. And it's particularly uh, those on lower wages with fewer opportunities for whom buses are a lifeline. Yet buses have been starved of funding, with decline in real terms every year since 2009. The next Labour government will tackle the neglect of bus services. We will deliver the funding and the legislative reform to create bus services that function properly as part of purposely designed networks rather than just where they maximise the profits of the bus operators and you will have seen that we made our announcements about those from 0 to 25 being able to travel free of charge in a re-regulated bus environment. We will extend uh, the franchising capability from city regional mayors to all English authorities and we will lift the bar on the creation of new municipal bus companies but Britain needs a new approach to reducing death and serious injury on our streets in 2017 there were nearly 1,800 deaths on our roads and almost 25,000 people seriously injured that's five people killed on Britain's roads every single day and over 10 times that number, seriously injured. Many with life-changing injuries, uh, which was something I was very familiar with in my previous life. And if these were our precious uh, uh, British troops serving us overseas, then quite rightly, this would be headline news. We seem to have come to accept the steady death toll on our roads as an acceptable cost to pay uh, for the convenience of car use. No other transport sector, rail, aviation or ferry services, would tolerate these shockingly high number of casualties. Yet for road transport, we seem as a country to assume that these casualties are unavoidable. So, these are some of the key principles by which I'd be happy to be held accountable and judged by were I to be given the honour of becoming Labour's next Transport Secretary. And if I was speaking to any civil servant walking into the DFT today, what I would say to them is that I hope with the Labour government coming to power, you will feel confident and proud of the job that you do, that you, your skills and your policy expertise will be nurtured and supported. You will know your mission is always to support a transport system for the many, not the few, founded on the principle that transport is an essential public service. You will see that your job is as much about improving public health through a shift to public transport and active travel as well as rebalancing our economy through working alongside devolved authorities to invest in transport and that the contribution you will make to the development of long-term transport policy goals will let you say you have helped reduce inequality and helped to build a fairer britain that's the sort of department for transport I hope they would feel inspired to work for, and it's the kind of Department for Transport that I would want to lead. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. Now, I'm sure there are many questions out there. I will uh, take a picture at the start of it. Um, And it's an ambitious vision. Uh, You've covered a lot of ground here today. But as you've acknowledged and as you know, putting this into practice in governments is that much harder. Uh, We know from our own research on how previous governments have managed that transition into power. We know from our programme of interviews with former ministers that actually you have to prioritise. And you have to give a a clear signal to the departments of what your priorities are, particularly for the near term as well as for the long term. But So how would you do that? If you were having a conversation with the Permanent Secretary, mm. what would you tell them are your top three priorities for your first year?
1: Well, I think well, we did have uh, those uh, discussions, as people will be aware, prior to the 2017 election, and I think that was probably more uh, a commitment to form rather than expectation. Um, but uh, we're in a different ball game now. So I think in terms of the... Uh, priorities that we would uh, set out, Um, uh, principally it's making sure that the climate change objective is right at the heart of everything that we do. I think that's critically important that we establish that in the first instance. I think um, uh, secondly I want to um, address some of those cultural issues that I've highlighted in my remarks uh, that I perceive uh, that need uh, correction within the department itself and then thirdly it's about getting that hierarchy of priorities in terms of those transport objectives that we've talked about and I'm particularly thinking about um, the uh, repairing of the deregulated uh, public transport systems. Um, so I think, I think that would really encapsulate the very first conversation uh, and would set out those priorities hopefully with some clarity and, and I think there would be not only um, a, a welcome uh, of that agenda but I think it would be a great appeal as well and I think it's something that people could commit to with uh, full vigour um, because you know we're, we're all you know mums, dads, grandparents, we've got one planet to look after, we see what's going on in front of our eyes, I think we all recognise that there's a better way to do these things and I think the, the agenda is compelling.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I'll turn to the audience. Already quite a few, um, just because you're in the door. If you could say who you are. There's microphones coming around. I'm going to take these in threes uh, at the back and then at the front. I'll come to you after, if that's okay.
1: Greg Rosen, Newington. Um, thank you for your speech and very comprehensive uh, vision and strategy. Um, uh, to achieve that, to achieve the unified uh, system you talk about, do you plan to take public ownership of the Roscoe's and of HS1, and if so, during the first term?
0: Okay. Uh, At the back, please.
1: Andy, good morning. Anthony Smith from Transport Focus. New research we've done with passengers about the Williams Review shows that they do want more accountability from public transport systems but are concerned fully private, fully state system, not responsive to consumer needs. How will you respond to that? Thank you.
0: And then gentlemen gentleman at the front, please.
1: Rupert Brennan Brown from Portabrook, one of the Roscos. Um, very interested, Andy, in your views on bringing different departments of government more closely together. Could you just expand on that a bit, please? Okay.
0: Okay. Public ownership of HS1 and the Roscos.
1: Okay. Yeah. Um, the sh- was it was it Greg? Um, I just, uh, the the short answer to Greg is no. We we we're not looking uh, to. Um, bring Roscoe's back into uh, public ownership. I'll qualify that. Um, let me just say, I, 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 and, and, and Rupert knows my view about this. I think that was robbery, by the way. Uh, you, 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 we, you got our trains for a knockdown price, and then you lease them back to us, and we've paid through the nose ever since. Uh, I don't like that one bit. Um, having said that, that is the world as it is. And not only that, um, there is great expertise within the Roscoe's, and I recognise that. They are broadening their work, and we have to be intelligent about that and recognise that an awful lot of the, the skills base actually is that's where it is. And so I want to work with those Roscoe's, but I don't, I'll, I'll be straight with you, where the opportunity arises for us to procure trains directly at a more effective, uh, on a more effective basis, I think that's what we should do. And of course, if you look to uh, places like Merseyrail, who were doing self-same thing, them, th- th- those are not Roscoe procured, they are, they are directly acquired. Same with um, uh, Nexus in Tynan in, in Weir, uh, Tynan Weir Metro. So that's the, that's the landscape, but I'm realistic about, uh, about those objectives. And I think when it comes on to HS1, I think we'll have enough to do We've got a huge agenda here, um, so it isn't uh, on my radar uh, to, 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 to go down those avenues that you described, Greg. So I hope that sort of clarifies where we're at, because I did go to one rail event where I was on my way to discover that my opposite number had um, invited the audience to demand Mandy McDonald if he's going to take the uh, rail supply chain into public ownership. No, I'm not. That's just nonsense. This is about operation. It's about bringing the railway together. It's unifying track and train and speaking to the devolution agenda to make sure that people uh, have uh, a a, a stake in their their own services. So there's an awful lot of mythology around what we're going to do. I mean, this is so uh, radical and extreme that, you know, centre-right governments have been running these programmes in mainland Europe for decades. Um, But that's the way that the debate is... Characterized in this country, sadly. Um, uh, but so hopefully uh, that will uh, give you um, not just some comfort but some reassurance that there's an awful lot of strength and ability within our transport industries that I want to harness and work with uh, and not uh, put myself in opposition to them. Um, uh, Anthony uh, uh, raised the issue of the Williams Review uh, and essentially saying, if I quote him correctly, that it's not a question of um, whether things are publicly owned or privately owned, it's a, it's a question of addressing uh, consumers' needs. Well, I, I, I get that, and that's why I've, I've said it on previous occasions. I'm not going about this uh, programme on the basis of the, uh, there's an ideological obsession with bringing things into pub- public ownership. I think the Conservative Party did, did that before, when they looked at the rail industry, And erroneously, in my view, said, what have we got left to privatise? Let's do that. Uh, And they didn't talk about what they wanted to achieve with their transport system. And so I think if you work from that premise, rather than saying public ownership for its own sake, if you set out very clearly your objectives, what should a transport system do? What what are we trying to do in terms of economic regeneration, uh, our climate change objectives, and so on? I think you will find that the only way to bring about a truly integrated transport system is to have that public control and public ownership that they enjoy in places like Strasbourg and Munich, which are, as I said to you, you know, not uh, administrations of my particular political uh, color, but they recognize that that's, that works for their greater benefit. And how ludicrous is it that you would have disparate modes of transport in private hands, <coughs> running in competition with each other what is the sense of that surely to goodness we should have a system where by those those different modes of transport are speaking to each other and connecting people because it's the whole journey for the individual that we're talking about uh, not the private and commercial interests of the individual providers of each segment of that of that operation so the, the customers needs are absolutely and utterly uh, the, the, the focus of, a, of an integrated uh, transport system. Uh, and then Rupert asked uh, a question where I wrote it down and I can't read my writing. So it was around bringing or getting different departments to work through. Ah, yes, different departments. Yeah. It, yeah, di- I different departments. I now, I now can read my writing. <laughs> um, absolutely, it is the holy grail. But, you know, if you go about the, our our planning and housing allocation as we as we currently do it's a scattergun approach where we plonk garden villages and other such developments hither, thither and everywhere without any regard to uh, the transport connectivities Uh, and we often create islands of isolation where people are forced to depend upon a motorcar which they may or may not be able to afford We've got to get our uh, heads out of that. So when we talk about uh, planning and housing, let's think about those uh, 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 cities of, of short journeys with that transit-oriented development that brings that together. And at the same time, so we've got a, a, a housing and planning perspective, but we've also got a major um, uh, 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 environmental and health issues, issues to look at. So it's essential that those departments talk to each other. In opposition, that is exactly what we are doing. I'm endlessly meeting with a number of colleagues across uh, several departments, trying to tie all this together. And uh, the expert in this room will, will recognise that it's pretty difficult to do that in opposition because we are so thinly resourced. Um, I think that might be an, an issue for the IFG more broadly because I think it is recognised that you know, if we're going to have a, a, a healthy democratic process, we need to Look at how uh, our parliamentar- uh, parliamentarians are supported with expertise. Because I am somebody who absolutely does believe in expertise, and I walk into rooms, uh, be it in aviation or rail or, or, whatever, or logistics, whatever it may well be. In front of me, our people who have been steeped in the industry for thirty and forty years. The imen- amount of knowledge and expertise that's there uh, is uh, is all there for everyone to see. Being able to access it and use it. Um, We're doing pretty well at that, I I would think, Uh, but it's uh, not exactly uh, an instantaneous provision of resources to you. You have to work hard at it. But it is essential that we do join health, uh, planning, housing development, industrial strategy, that they all speak to each other. This is absolutely hopeless to to, 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 to work in any other way. So this is why we are working in that way and will continue to do so uh, hopefully in government.
0: Okay, next round. Uh, Oh, God knows. Gentleman at the front here, and then I'll have to sort of work my way through in a second. Uh, Sorry. David
1: Metz, University College London. You stress the importance of aligning um, climate change and transport objectives. So what about aviation, and in particular, the third runway at Heathrow? Mm
0: Okay, uh, next I'm going to go for the lady over there by the pictures. Yep. Hi, Harriet Beaumont from Headland. Um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the um, government's uh, future of urban mod- mobility strategy they published yesterday, um, and particularly uh, the commitment to look further at sort of opportunities around new technologies such as e scooters. And then over here, this gentleman in front. Sorry, that I will try and get to the rest of you in the next round, and you will have to do shorter answers. Oh, sorry. <laughs>
1: Hi, um, Andy, you spoke a bit about um, your plans to reduce congestion on the motorways, but obviously it's a concern for um, commuters and uh, passengers on the roads as well. So i was just wondering what your thoughts were on some of the things that the current government's uh, initiated, like lane rental um, and permit schemes. Do you plan to expand that? And how do you plan to work with uh, local authorities and utility companies to reduce congestion? Okay. Right, um, a David raised the issue of uh, alignment of transport with uh, environmental uh, objectives and specifically the third runway at Heathrow. Well, I've got to say that uh, you know, I, I carried through my analysis opposite our four tests uh, that I inherited from previous uh, Shadow Transport Secretaries and tried to faithfully apply those. Not only that, we had the uh, Transport Select Committee uh, set out, um, I think it was probably about 24, 25 recommendations, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But nevertheless, uh, they declared themselves unsatisfied with uh, those, th- that those recommendations had been met. And of course, we're now into um, uh, a judicial review and five local authorities uh, pressing the case. So, I've, I've tried to take a, a consistent approach Um, to issues of uh, noise, air pollution and climate change objectives. And I think we'll see this follow all the way through. Um, And and, and unless and until those uh, criteria are satisfied by any objective means, I think we've got a a problem. Uh, And I I make no bones about that. That has to uh, come through that process unscathed. And it's not in my gift, as we currently speak, to see what that is. There is somebody who's going to be pretty important. That's, that's the judge in this, in this judicial review. So I, I would just say, let us <coughs> watch that with very great care. Um, I do engage with the aviation industry in trying to ensure that they are continuously making progress. I'm too long on who I am. Um, on, uh, on trying to uh, address these issues in technological <coughs> and other usage terms. And in fairness, they're doing some some interesting work. Norway is looking at how they go about their uh, uh, inter-Norwegian uh, uh, air travel, because they depend heavily upon uh, travel by travel by air, and looking to be much more uh, responsible in the way they go about that. So, you know, it, I, I can't stress that it's very much at the, at the, at the top of our agenda. Future mobility, I, I think this is... We're getting into very exciting territory um, with uh, a whole host of options available to us and we're thinking about issues such as e-cargo bikes and the rest of it to, to deliver on uh, a last uh, uh, mile delivery which could have great uh, opportunities, it's a, it, it could be a new uh, departure for us. And then on congestion and lane rental schemes, I am uh, I'm discomforted about the whole process of using hard shoulders as uh, a, a way of moving traffic. I get the argument, I understand it, but it, I still can't pull myself away from the very fact the hard shoulder exists for a very good reason. Uh, and I think if we were going to go down that 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 path of just continuously exploiting them as permanent um, uh, 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 hi- highway lanes, I think we're, we're heading for uh, uh, some some dangerous territory. I'd much prefer us to be looking at public transport options to, t- rem- to remove vehicles from the road rather than uh, going down that particular path. Does that answer you? Yeah.
0: OK, another round quickly. Uh, lady at the front, so gentleman at the front there, and then I will probably go to you. Hi, Andy. Um, Alex from City AM here. Um, you reiterated re- uh, labour support for HS2 today. Um, but my question for you is, would that support continue if the line stopped at Birmingham? or if it was only able to run with fewer trains at slower speeds, as has been reported. Okay, this gentleman here. Uh, Christian Walmer. Sorry, I can wait for the microphone so that the back can hear you, thank you. Christian Walmer.
1: There's two sort of things you didn't mention, so I'm going to squeeze in two questions in them, basically. Um, One is, you didn't mention the potential of uh, cycling, really, you just kind of mentioned it on passing. Would you recognise that cycling is actually something that fits in very well with labour values? And at the other end of the scale you didn't mention autonomous vehicles um mm. do you think that the 250 million that has been spent on research for autonomous vehicles is a waste of money or do you think that uh, labor would continue that program
0: okay and then that there. i'll come to you in the next round if that's okay hi andy uh, nick lee's from the rac um, keen to hear your thoughts on zero-emission vehicles. Uh, Our research suggests that motorists are reluctant presently for a variety of reasons to switch to zero-emission vehicles. Um, Just wanted to know what plans you would have as Transport Secretary to accelerate the take-up of zero-emission vehicles and whether the government's 2040 target is ambitious enough.
1: Okay, dealing with that uh, last on zero emissions, I was disappointed to see the plug-in grants um, uh, cut and the allowances for uh, new uh, uh electric zero emission vehicles um uh in, in in recent times i think that was a retrograde step that doesn't help um we have got to be uh much more focus uh, focused on ensuring the infrastructure is there to, in, to encourage that growth it is it is a it is a significant uh, part of the answer um the cars that we have we need to migrate them to uh, zero emission as quickly as we possibly can and and removing those Financial supports is not an encouragement, um, and I think we've got to uh, uh, review that uh, uh, very much. Uh, Christian, I'm, I'm sorry, but it didn't dwell on that. We could have an entire morning about uh, uh, cycling, and I and I and I get that entirely. The whole active travel agenda does mean that we've got to create not only. Uh, city uh, centres and town centres that are receptive and um, uh, enjoyable for people to to cycle. Uh, uh, you know, as Labour Cycle says, it should be should be, cycling should be for the many, not for the brave. Uh, and um, <laughs> I, and I and I get that entirely. It is integral to everything that we're trying to do. And and we when we when we are looking at our road network, we've got to look at the. Copenhagen-style uh, cycle superhighways that, that enable people to travel some significant distances by bike as well. So there's endless opportunities for us. The whole e-bike revolution that's about to uh, uh, take off again, we've got to encourage um, the take-up, but also the development of, and that really feeds into our industrial strategy. Uh, in terms of autonomous uh, vehicles, um, you know, can I can I take a rain check on, on that in terms of where the investment's going to be coming from because there are, uh, there are priorities this is, this is rattling on a pace there are industrial strategy dividends to be to be, to be be had of I think see, uh, that investment but it, where it ranks in the priorities and at the moment I'm not in a position to be crystal clear about that I'm not dodging it it's just that I need to think about it much more carefully but I, I get the point that you're making about it and I understand that very well Alex, HS2, I'm um, uh, no bones about it. I think you know if we, we, we have got to, uh, as, a, as a generation, to invest in our railways, and th- there, are, there are lots of criticisms of HS2 <coughs> abounding at the moment. but if we genuinely want to um, rebalance our economy, if we want to address the issues of capacity, freeing capacity for rail freight and other things, we have got to invest in our railway, We cannot continue to rely upon a 200-year-old system. Um, it, it's, it's totally ludicrous. It's just simply that we were the first to get into railways, but this system is at, at, uh, at capacity. We need something else. I think there are some valid observations uh, uh, that are being made, and I'm applying my mind to making sure that it, it produces the best possible connectivity across places like the Midlands and the North. To what extent is HS2 speaking to those other developments, and we, be it HS3, Crossrail for the North, whatever you want to call it, um, it's essential that we get those great connections between uh, our major uh, cities. Uh, I'm thinking in particular, for example, uh, Sheffield, uh, Manchester, and Leeds. So I'm looking very carefully about making sure that the, 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 the projects, the initiatives speak to each other. I've got an apprehension at the moment that that's not as good as it could be uh, and that needs to improve in my view. Uh, But I think certainly achieving those uh, better connectivities and freeing up that capacity will lead to uh, 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 economic growth and regeneration of many places across our country, ergo reducing inequality. So um, we have to look at it, we have to spend the money sensibly, I get that.
0: Okay, I think we've got time for one more round, so apologies if I don't get to you. Uh, a lady in the doorway have been waiting patiently. I'll come to you, and then uh, I might try and squeeze two more in. Thank you. Nina Kowalska. I just want to pick up on HS2. You probably would have seen the report that came out today from the New Economics Foundation, which highlights um, that actually, in terms of reducing inequality uh, north to south, it will probably do the complete opposite And also, Friends of the Earth has called HS2 a carbon disaster, actually using HS2's own carbon figures. So, given that you've said there's not a blank check, and HS2 started at 34 billion, it's now looking like it could be as high as 100 billion due to underestimated land costs, amongst other things. How does that reconcile with your strategy of putting climate and carbon at the heart of the transport strategy, but also the North South, reducing the North South divide? OK. OK. Uh, gentleman at the front.
1: Yeah. Good morning, Andy. It's Peter Loseley from the Railway Industry Association. Uh, you very <coughs> kindly mentioned the work that we've done on electrification, um, and we're very pleased to hear that you would uh, look at a drumbeat programme of electrification to reduce costs. Can I ask if the same would apply to enhancements more generally in the railway?
0: Okay, and then there were two at the back, um, that lady and then um, this gentleman. Thanks. It's Sorry to everyone else. <laughs> Thanks, it's uh, Laura McKenzie from Friends of the Earth. Um, it's really good to hear the focus on climate change, uh, as well as taking the government to court as one of the parties in the judicial review. One of the focuses of our work is trying to find policy solutions that make it fair when it comes to aviation, and one of the... Uh, Policies that we're putting forward with many others, including NEFIS, the frequent flyer levy. So it's a kind of social justice and fairness approach to high carbon activities like aviation. I'm just wondering what Labour's policy is on that and if that's something you're looking at too. Thanks. Okay. And then this gentleman. Thanks. Uh, Max Wilson, WPI. Uh, you answered a question earlier about uh, Heathrow expansion, and I understand your reasons why um, you, you disagree with that one. But I'm just curious whether um, you, un- you agree with the principle that there is a need for uh, expansion in, airport expansion in the s- London, the south-east in the future, and whether that would be a priority for a future Labour government. Okay.
1: Um, okay I'll, I'll, Nina's uh, raised the issue of, uh, of HS2. Uh, the north-south division and the the, the carbon issue around that, um,
0: and th- the cost, and the, the cost, and <laughs> the cost.
1: Um, yeah, on, on the north-south um, uh, com- complaint or observation, I think that I, I just refer back to my previous response that it, it it will be of it will have missed its objective if it was to simply uh, be north-south uh, uh, high-speed uh, connections. That's not what it's to do. If that is the only thing that it achieves, then that would be um, a poor outcome. And that's why I think we've got to concentrate on making sure that it's of benefit to those uh, people, those communities, those businesses in, in, the, in, 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 in our, uh, our regions. And let's face it, 90% of our journeys are local and, and of short distance. Um, so we've got to see it in that context. and It must achieve those objectives of connecting those uh, uh, conurbations effectively. Um, the, I, I'm aware of the, uh, the, uh, the NEF report, which I've read the, the summary of. I want to go in. It's about 60-odd pages. I've yet to study it in every, every single detail, but I've, but I've got the, uh, the gist of the criticisms, and it's calling for, amongst other things, investment in the conventional railway. Um, I think they're absolutely right about that. I'm not sure they've got it exactly targeted correctly, uh, and uh, I'm not here as a uh, t- uh, to, uh, to um, uh, uh, speak on behalf of HS2, but I think, in fairness, the National Audit Office have done a, a pretty thorough job on this so far, and I just want to see uh, where uh, the uh, the consistency is between these observations. But I've already alluded to to, 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 to my uh, uh, um, sense of this is that keying into better connectivity within the regions that HS2 uh, connects itself is critically important and we can't take our eye off the ball. In terms of carbon um, I think we've got to look very very carefully at at, uh, carbon budgeting across all our departments and that's something I want to explore very very carefully Uh, but as I said in my speech I think we should be looking at all all modes and fixing uh, budgets accordingly. On cost um, uh, yes we're talking about what is was 57 billion in 2015 costs uh, and people complain that that will rise significantly as i've said consistently we've got to watch that like a hawk and make sure that this uh, doesn't um, uh, 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 reach the sorts of proportions that people are talking about i know michael bing and others have done their own analysis and fear that this may rise. Uh, Um, uh, very considerably. We've got to look at that very carefully and that is why I'm saying that there can't be that uh, blank check. Peter raised the issue of electrification and enhancements more uh, generally. Uh, I I, I think that's right. I think we've got to set out, if we really want to have that investment and partnering with uh, uh, the supply chain who can Mm -hmm. invest in their own businesses and invest in people, we need to be able to set out what those long-term ambitions are so it's not just about the electrification of a, a railway spine, it's about the other enhancements that are going to be needed <coughs> over that sort of uh, timescale. And that's why we talk about 30 to 40 year uh, 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 programmes. We want to see that strategy developed. Um, we also want to make sure that people can have that career development. Um, this is, and I foresee the day of people coming into the industry who you know, people don't do this very often these days. But I can see people having long-term careers if, uh, and we can have that to a, a high specification and a high value if we just give that lead and say this is what our country needs. That means that everybody can align around that. Um, Laura raised the issue of uh, uh, the potential of a frequent flyer uh, levy. Um, I think that is something that you we would want to uh, consider. We 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 actually receive it from the other end, constant entreaties to abolish or reduce uh, passenger duty and we will see uh, what happens with the discussions with the DUP over the uh, coming days. It may well be, it it is rumoured that one of the carrots that will be dangled in front of them is the abolition of APD for Northern Ireland so uh, I think this is this is desperate stuff by the way I think to approach any policy framework just by simply grabbing at the nearest thing to you and say we'll do that we'll do that anything to to make progress is is just wholly unstrategic and and hopeless um, but I think the the, the the issue you raised does warrant very very careful uh, examination uh, and I'm, I'm certainly it's it, it's on my radar and I'd be very happy to Um, further discuss that uh, with you Um, and then finally I think max raised the issue Uh, the issue of um, uh, Southeast air capacity I mean I've said consistently that you know the the the, the we need to maximize the capacity within within our existing uh, airport network and it's quite it's quite fascinating that opposite the decision for the third runway at Heathrow that Gatwick did a complete and utter rethink and came up with a well I think it's quite an interesting proposal uh, to establish a second runway, using the standby runway, moving it was it twelve meters, uh, so that it can, ac- can accommodate greater capacity um, and without knocking a house down without encroaching on anybody else 's land and so on and so forth, so I think that 's quite attractive i don 't think we can ignore this because we recognize that those airports are full, and we need to do something about that but i 'm also looking at uh, uh, freight capacity there is um, there are opportunities at East Midlands and uh, elsewhere to, 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 to pick up some of that uh, strain. So um, I think we just we can adhere to the principle that there's, that there's a need to utilise capacity that's available um, uh, and at the same time take a, uh, have a, a critical and forensic eye over what is planned for specific airports. I think we can do the this, this same thing because we have those responsibilities.
0: Thank you very much. We've run out of time. Um, well, you've certainly fulfilled your brief of uh, offering your policies up to public scrutiny and allowing the audience to question you on them thoroughly. Uh, obviously, it's a busy couple of weeks, uh, so our minds continue turning towards Brexit. We'll notice we didn't even have any questions on that, after all. Uh, yeah. Head back over to Parliament. Uh, and Thank you all for coming. We've really appreciated it. I hope you've had a, a good time. And um, if you could just join me in finally thanking Andy once Thank you. again.